0: Hi and welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. This is your host Spencer Martin. This week we are talking about uh, Tour Flanders race notes from the men's and women's race. Uh, n- new feature I'm trying to work in. Little post race interview from Kristen Faulkner, who our guest last week, who actually got tenth and with an amazing ride on Sunday. Uh, there was a few. She just kind of lost the wheel at one point due to positioning, but other than that, physically, I thought she was even strong enough to win it. So. Definitely a rider to keep an eye on as the season progresses, and I uh, really look forward to seeing her back at these Spring Classics next, next year after having this year under her belt. And then we'll talk a little bit about the tour of the Basque Country after that. Uh, super interesting race that kind of gets overlooked because of the Classics, but with the cancellation—or, sorry, postponement of Père-Roubaix— we get to spend a little bit more time looking into this. We have Primoz Roglic, Antare Pogacar going head-to-head. I hate to spoil it, but they're going to be one, two in the Tour de France this year. We just don't know the order. So every, every race they're going head-to-head at this year, I'm going to be really paying close attention to that. And it's just exciting racing. It's, it's a great course, really beautiful part of the world, really rainy part of the world, uh, really mountainous part of the world. So it tends to put up uh, some incredible racing to watch. But first, if you want to support the podcast, uh, sign up for the newsletter at beyondthepeloton.substack.com. There is a free weekly edition, so if you enjoy the podcast, it's a no-brainer. There's also a paid edition that's daily during Grand Tours, trice-weekly during non-Grand Tour weeks, and you'll get select brand discounts. You get like 20% off stages, uh, outdoor products like power meters, head units, heart rate monitors. Got the whole family heart rate monitors recently you get 20% off Cure of Switzerland clothing, just beautiful Swiss cycling clothing. So I'm, I'm, I'm all over that. The whole family's decked out in Swiss cycling clothing. So you'd be a fool not to take advantage of those offers. And there's also, it's possibly just for a limited little bit more time, that free 12 months of startup premium if you sign up in the next, uh, before those coupons run out. So imminently. So do it right now. Do it today. Be on the Peloton.substack.com. I'm going to go men's first, and then we'll go into the women's race notes, and, and then we'll have Kristen come on, and then I'll do Bass Country after that. So first, men in the men's Tour Flanders, Casper uh, Askren wins, beats Matthew Vanderpool in a two-up sprint. Uh, they, they were the two strongest riders in the race uh, by, by quite a bit, actually. Woot Van Aert was originally away with them, so it was a, bre- a, a not a breakaway, but a lead group of three. Woot got dropped on the old Quermont when Vanderpool attacked. Quick takeaways from this: I was uh, shocked that Askren. Uh, looking back, he was kind of obvious as as a winner. He was he was trying to tell us that he was the strongest rider in this race, and like none of us wanted to wanted to listen to him. I mean, he soloed. He had that incredible solo win at E3 where he was away for 60 kilometers, got caught with 12k to go, attacked with 6k to go, and won. I mean, that should have been like a glaring. Red blinking light that he was going to win. Uh, kind of foolish for any of any of us not to not to pick him. I had him one of my favorites, but looking back, he probably should have been my number one favorite. Especially considering how Vanderpool looked pretty beat up on Wednesday at Doors Doors with Vanderin and how Wout Van Aert showed some cracks at E three uh, One Gent wevelgem but with kind of a reserved performance. And it, it makes total sense. Matthew Vanderpool and Wout Van Aert I talked about, I've been talking about this for months. They've been racing full speed for a long time. I mean, they were doing cross races back in December. Both of them were pretty fit at cross world championships. They were one and two in January, you know, while Askren's away at a training camp doing slow, not slow, but like building up his base, you know, as, as you would actually train if you were serious about being a professional cyclist. So it just makes total sense that he would be stronger right now. It kind of all, all the, all the riding was on the wall. We just like, I should have trusted trusted the process a little bit more. Um, I wrote back in December, I've gotten a lot of, a lot of heat for this, but I wrote back in December that Van Art and Vanderpool are possibly shortening, you know, hurting their road careers by spreading themselves too thin. Uh, Vanderpool's racing mountain bike, cyclocross, and road at the world class level, trying to win the world championships in all three. I think that's like a road to burnout. We saw that with Marianne Abbas and PFP will call her. And and they both had they both suffered from burnout. So the two riders that have tried to do this, uh, it didn't. It didn't work out for. So not quite sure why people think this is a good idea. Kind of seems obvious that it, that it would hurt your road performance. And to me, that's exactly what we saw. I mean, as these classics, as the classics go on, the races get bigger. They were both able to kind of come in pretty hot. I mean, they were both really good at Torino. Uh, uh, Vanderpool was really good at that opening weekend where he was off the front at Kern for like 70k before getting caught. But that's not, I mean, looking back, that's not how you win these big classics. I, I went back and looked through it, like Fabian Cancellara and Tom Boonen's results from their best seasons, and they were not peaking that early. It's a, it's, it's a pretty foolhardy way to approach it. So, taking all of that into account, when, they, when Vanderpool and Askren crested the Paderberg with 12K to go, I should have had more confidence in Askren. But at the time, I was thinking, oh man, what's he doing? He's just, he's working with them, he's riding. Just to his own execution, like this is so silly. Like this is Niki Terpstra in 2015 did the the, the same thing when he rode to the finish with Alexander Kristoff and just got smoked in the sprint. It it was just like clearly riding for second, which you know there's there's big contract bonuses for us to take into account there. I don't want to tell anyone not to collect a seven figure bonus for a podium finish at a monument, but. It's a little lame from a from a sporting perspective. Like, come on, at least try something. <laughs> but, and I thought the same thing with Askren. Why is he working in Vanderpool? This is so silly. He's riding away from his own teammate, Florian, Florian at Seneschel and the chase group behind. This is like bad team tactics. But lo and behold, they get to the sprint, and Askren just smoked him. I mean, opened it up kind of far out, 250 meters. It just had great confidence. I was super, super impressed he didn't panic and sprint earlier uh, Vanderpool faster acceleration. I don't think, you know, no one would, no one would doubt that, that not even Askren, but I think that's why he opened it up a little bit early because he knew that, uh, Vanderpool was going to beat him off the line. And then he just kind of methodically overcame him. And, and by the last 50 meters, Vanderpool couldn't even pedal. He was just toast. So great win. I mean, he knew, he knew he was stronger and he trusted himself. Uh, super impressive. If you want to go into a more detailed, dissection of the race, uh, my post from the the day after is on beyondthepeloton.substack.com. It's free to read. And there, there were kind of three key moments. I mean, I'll talk about them briefly here that I thought decided the race where it was really, you know, as early out as they, they go over the Cuermote the first time with like 50K to go, 54K to go. And it was just clear where that Vanderpool and like Askren attacked and Vanderpool went with him and he was marking him. Like Vanderpool knew that Askrin was the strongest rider in the race, or at least in his mind, probably the second strongest behind himself. And Woot on all of these, Wout, I think his name is Wout, actually. I should change the way I say it. Wout is just, he's, he's closing the gaps, but he's struggling too. And if you're struggling to this far out, you know, it's going to be a lot harder when you get closer. And then every time they hit a hard climb, it's the same thing with the Tyenberg. You know, Askren goes again, and then Vanderpool's right on his wheel. Vanderpool tries to counter it, uh Philippe, wout and Askren go with him but you know we can kind of see the handwriting on the wall here and it's the same thing they hit paved section that's what's interesting about flanders is these paved. there's these h- really hard cobbled climbs where people you know guys attack they think they're going to get away there it actually rarely happens like this is the classic greg van avermaet move where you attack hard on a cobbled climb Others follow you. Someone counters on the pavement, and they get away. I mean, this is like how Nikki Terpstra and Nibali got away in, I believe, 2018. Um, Christoph, I believe Christoph and Terpstra got away on this same stretch of pavement as well in 2015. So it's, it's like a known thing, but Van Avermat has never really been able to figure that out. It's kind of plagued up his entire career. But as soon as they get onto the pavement after the what's this climb, the Kreuzberg, really tough climb. Probably the longest climb in this in this in the finale in the final. Um Alaphilippe attacks right as they get on the pavement. Super obvious. he gets he gets reeled in, but then his teammate Askren, kind of smartly, just maybe four or five hundred meters later, there's some uh, Swoors on the right side of the road, giving out bottles. Anthony Torgis, who bridged up a super impressive bridge from the Chase group, only rider that could do that, that can make that across. Um, he gets up to the front group. He goes over to take a bottle with a few other riders. And Askren goes to the other side of the road, the left side of the road, and attacks. And that's the winning move, really. So it, it's, I mean, they, they clearly in that team, in that Dakota Quick Step team, are studying the course, studying what's worked in the past. So I was really, really impressed by that. Wout and Vanderpool go with him. It's a little funny at the time. I thought it was funny because I thought, I was like, well, he's leaving Philippe, and he's pulling these guys. He does stop pulling. You can tell that the team car gets in his earpiece and says, hey, man, you cannot work with these guys. Uh, Wout takes issue with that. Vanderpool doesn't. Vanderpool just keeps pushing on because, and I think in Vanderpol's mind, he's like, I'm going to drop this guy in the Mode anyway, so what do I care? I'm going to solo to this race win. Wout, maybe this is a sign that he's not feeling that great because if he's quibbling with them, there really is no reason for him to work like under no circumstance. Can he work with them? It's not even worth having the conversation. So, uh, it's interesting that, that Wout was taking, uh, even wasting his energy, having a conversation about it. Even with Askren sitting on, it balloons up to 22 seconds, which should probably have told us that Vanderpool was working too hard. Cause if we think about that, that's, you know, the Queer month starts about 18 K to go. So for 8 K, Askren's sitting on and Vanderpool's just drilling it on the front. You know, you think of, you know, these small margins, these small efforts catch up. You wonder if that, if that was the difference, if that's why, A, Askren was able to follow him. You know, they, they kind of ride tempo. Askren takes the front up the quermount. Uh, And I have a screenshot in the newsletter where, I mean, he's breathing through his nose. And even Vanderpool, wow, it looks like he's really suffering. Vanderpool looks under pressure. So right there, we should have known that, he's probably the strongest guy in the race. Vanderpool does one of his, uh, the Cuermo's tough because it has, it's a steep first section, and then it kind of has these like stair-step false flats afterwards that a lot of time the winning move can go on. Like Alberto Betiol in 2019 won the race with attack the right there. Vanderpool kind of looks like he's he's like copying the exact same attack. He, had, he does his like super, it looks like he's in like turbo mode where his legs start spinning almost impossibly fast and he'll just ride away in the saddle. It looks like you know for, for, for a few moments it's like oh wow he's riding to the race win this is it. Um, Askren is able to recover. I mean this is what's so impressive about his ride. He doesn't panic. He just kind of stays in the saddle. He knows he can pull him back. He doesn't panic at all. Uh, Wout has popped. Um, game over for Wout. Uh, there's this really there's this paved rolling section after that where Wout. Uh, if you're not if you don't if you can't get close enough. By the end of the cobbles, like you're done here. And Askren does just enough to get back on. Wow, is distanced. You're you're done once you hit these rollers if you're not with this guy's. Um the Paderberg, Vanderpol tries to attack. He can't get rid of Askren. He's probably thinking right here, hmm, that's interesting. What's going on here? Um, Askren, I think, was probably really emboldened by this because he's thinking, well, I've just taken this guy's best shot and I survived it. So why why can't I beat him? And, you know, he, he took him to the line. He beat him straight up in a sprint, drag, like a drag strip sprint. It's really impressive. So uh, really, really no notes for Casper there. I thought he was screwing it up during the race. But looking back, he, you know, he played that perfectly. So I, may, I, I might do a whole episode on this. Uh, so I'm just going to touch on it now. But there, I got, you know, a lot of notes about how, how oh, Vanderpool wasn't actually peaking. Uh, you didn't call, you didn't, he didn't peak too early. You didn't call this right. I would argue, though, that at his peak, you know, at his Str- Strada Bianchi form, he roasts Askren in that sprint. You know, he really, Julian Alaphilippe's one of the best uphill sprinters in the world, probably the best. And he just smoked him at Strada. So there's clearly, I mean, to me, it's, there's, there's a demonstrative drop-off in form. He's not the same rider he was at UAE Tour, at Kern at Strada and that stage at terreno that 50k breakaway that incidentally he's not been the same since that when he broke away for 50k in the freezing cold and rain he's not he's just it's just it's it's obvious he's not the same rider um, if he had the strength he had then he he wins this sprint you know 10 out of 10 times so there's clearly been a drop off he's it's not as catastrophic as i thought it was going to be at dwars on wednesday i was thinking ooh this guy is is done he might not even finish flanders you know, he recovered. He gets second at Flanders. It's a good result. It's a really good result. He gets a monument podium. So you, you can't say that the spring was a disaster. Actually, I think even with, if you consider his cross schedule, it's actually a pretty good spring. But if we want to pull this out, and, and Wout too, I don't, I don't want to seem like I'm babying Wout. You know, he, I'm just going to read. So Matthew Vanderpoel wins Strada Bianchi wins, this is like, this is European world tour, or just European professional racing. I'm not counting the Middle East stuff. Wins two Torino stages, podium at E3 and podium at Flanders. So he has one Monument podium, uh, two Torino stages, and like a semi-classics win. Wow. Two Torino stage wins, second overall, podium at Melanson-Remo Monument, and a win at Gent-Wövelgem. So I would, I would say Gent-Wövelgem is a bigger race than Strad. Strad's probably Cooler, sexier, more popular. Um, I think Ghent is tougher race, but that's up for the debate. You know, that's kind of here then there. Let's just say they're the same level of race. So they've both won a semi classic. They've both podiumed at a monument. Both have two Torino stage wins. Wout gets second overall at Torino. I would say that you know that's actually that's not an insignificant result. That's a big result. So I would give him. I would say Wout's had the better spring just because of that. They've both had one monument podium, two week-long stage race wins, a win at a semi-classic. You know, pretty good spring. Pretty good. But (laughs) these guys get covered like they're superstars of the sport. You know, people act like Zeus himself, Thor himself, has come down to Earth to ride a bicycle. Let's just—I'm an old man. Let's go back to—I remember the spring of 2012 like it was yesterday a uh, Mr. Tom Boonin in the twilight of his career. This is not even his best year. Second at Omloop. First at E3. First at gent First at Flanders. First at Roubaix. Two monument victories in one spring. Just a random Boonin spring in his 30s. It's not, if we add their results together, it's not as good as that. Fabian Cancellara, 2010. Just a random Cancellara year I picked. First at E3, first at Flanders, first at Roubaix. Two monument victories. I mean, if we add Casper Askren, who won E3, won Flanders, if we add Askrin, Wout, and Matthew Vanderpool together, we equal about a Cancellar spring. So I just want to put into perspective, these guys are nowhere near as accomplished as the stars of yore. So I think people need to pump the brakes a little bit before we start denointing them like, and I'm guilty of this too. I think I get caught up in the hype. I get caught up in the excitement. I, I watched both of them race and the, the in, possibilities seem endless. But there's definitely something happening when the rubber meets the road where I think they egg each other on in races. They kind of make silly decisions. I don't think either of them needed to race as aggressively as they did for most of the spring. And we saw the one time Wout didn't race aggressively at Ghent that he won quite easily. So. I just think we need to pump the brakes on. They're certainly talented. They're very fun. I don't think anyone would dispute that. But they're not, at this point, as good as Boonin and Cancellara. And we re- I mean, even Peter Sagan. I could read out some of Peter Sagan's. I think people would be shocked if they went back and compared if we added Wout and Vanderpool together into one rider, that their win totals aren't even anywhere near Peter Sagan's are. So we really need to keep that in perspective. I think with Wout, I, I think it's ill-advised to be a stage... I don't think anyone can be a stage rater, racer and a world-class one-day classics rider in the same year. I can't even... In the modern era, I mean, this used to happen a lot, obviously, where like Eddie Merckx would win monuments, one-day monuments, and then the Grand Tours, but it's a different, you know, different sport now. I can't think of anyone in the last 20 years who's done this successfully. Um, like, Garrett Thomas and Bradley Wiggins have done this, but they've oscillated... You know, they'll add quite a bit of weight. They're not winning mountainous stage races in the years they're trying to win classics. So I think this is kind of catching up to WoW. I think this is a little silly. Um, Yum- I don't know what, is, what Yumbo's thinking. Um, and, on, and on the topic of Yumbo, WoW was completely isolated in the last 50K of that race. You know, and this is one of the strongest teams in the world last year. And now they can't even get a single rider in the last 50k of Flanders to support the leader. Not good. And and we'll get we'll we'll talk about Yumbo later when we when we get over to the Basque Country. So let's move on to the women after that. Uh the women's race was it was kind of reminded me of like an old school, and when I say old school I just mean a few years ago. Like the middle the middle twenty tens of a this is kind of how the men's race used to play out. I'm actually I don't know why the men's race has been more you don't get these big groups in the last two Ks. It used to be in the men's race, like the women's on Sunday where you know, every favorite was present at the base of the Alpe Quermont. And then that's where, you know, the race really, I'm, I'm being, this is like, I'm, I'm exaggerating, but the race really started with 19K to go. So I, I sent out, like, there's a, a post on beyondthepeloton.substack.com that dives into this a little bit more. Um, I'm just going to kind of fast forward to 19K to go. And when we talk to Kristen in a few minutes, she'll talk about this, that there was some serious leadouts going into the Quermont at 19K to go. Sarah Waugh, Sarah Roy, I guess is how the Aussies say it, is on the front. You know, she's Australian champion leading out her team leader, Grace Brown, who's really good, really good Aussie rider for team bike exchange. And this is key because it gets her at the front. Faulkner was isolated from her team at the time. And she goes from being in like perfect position with 27 K to go to being too far back with 19 K to go. And that that's the difference because we, once Anna Van Abregen hits the front with 17 K to go and ramps up the pace, it's like the front eight riders are there where you can even, you can see like Anna, Anna Van Vluten, who wins the race is, is kind of hurting right here. Grace Brown in second wheel hurting you know if she was 15 riders back you can't pass anyone you know it's like i've seen fabian and tom boonin and peter Sagan pass people on the quermone but that's about it it, it rarely happens you kind of are where you are and if a split happens in front of you there's not really anything you can do about it to close it down so position going in is, is really what matters Breggen is working for SD works and this is where it gets a little bit complicated for, I, I feel like Van Vluten wins this race like quite easily actually. I mean, just with like, she's a tour of force. you know, she's, she, you can't really let her get away solo or she's going to win. So I think you have to get a little bit creative when you're going against her. And I, I feel like SD works kind of stuffed this up because they have Amy Peters, Chantal black, and, Anna van der Bregen, three of the strongest riders in the world. All three of those, well, at least two of them have been world champions. One is reigning world champion, van der Bregen. Chantal Black won this race last year. Amy Peters was second. They also have Demi Vollering, who is like a really talented Dutch rider. Um, so van der Bregen's really working for those three. She drills it on the Cuermont. Keeps drilling it up and over the false flat. And it just, it explodes. You can it's devastating because these small splits that happen on the steep part are then just like wedged open on the false flat when you start going faster. It looks, it looks magnificent. It looks like, oh, wow, Anna just did all this great work. Once they get to the Paderberg, Van Vluten attacks. Uh, small gap, seven seconds at the top. Uh, Brenna, Lisa Brenauer and Alisa longo are behind her. It kind of looks like she's going to get caught on the descent, but anyone who has watched Flanders before knows this is not as easy as straight or straightforward as it looks because the riders behind start thinking like, hmm, well, I could get second. And then you start getting misaligned incentives. No one's going to be able to pull her back. She just keeps the uh, pedal on the gas and pulls away, wins. SDU Anna Vanderbreggen, who after doing all this work is then the only one really able to try to close it down, and she can't do it. Um, what I think was kind of odd about that move was just general bike racing theory. You never want to, if you have a numbers advantage. So there was, you know, really two Star riders of consequence, Leah Thomas and enemy van Vluten. You know, van Vluten's the big danger. You have four riders you probably should try to conserve your numbers. And you know that Van Vluten is like one of the tonnest, toughest son of a bees in the world and a great climber. You're probably not going to drop her on this climb. The only way you can really beat her is just with numbers. Get, Get numbers on her in that final 12K, and you could probably beat her. So I just thought this was kind of an odd move in retrospect. I don't quite know what the theory was here. It looks impressive. It kind of makes sense, right? If you, it's like football guy th- theory where you're just like, we're going to go fast and we're going to beat her. And you're like, okay, I'm, I'm pumped. That looks awesome. It looks, it looks very cool. It looks hard. But if you really think about it, they just helped Van Vluten. Like she had no, Leah Thomas, her teammate, her only teammate is dropped. She's back in the Faulkner, uh, Kasia, Neodoma, Mariana Voss group. And so Van Vluten's isolated up there and you're just giving up your own numbers to then set a hard pace, which helps Van Vluten because at this point with no teammates, she just wants to race as hard as possible. So she can drop everyone on the Paterberg. She attacks on the Paterberg knowing that that's her last chance. If she doesn't get away, she can't beat a lot of these riders in a sprint. So this is like the, the harder it is, the better it is for her. So I didn't quite understand that. And I think if they did the race again, I mean, maybe if, if Anna Vanderbregen wants to, wants to really sacrifice herself for the team, she'd be better off just getting out in front of the race. And then if Van Vluten attacks, she's riding up to Vanderbregen, kind of walking into a trap. I, I almost think they shouldn't have, she should, shouldn't have increased the pace at all. They just should have ridden, you know, as slow as possible up the Quermont. T- as slow as possible up the Paterberg after that. Just take as many numbers as you can. Into that final, I mean, Chantal Black's a good sprinter. Amy Peters, and Anna Vanderbreggen, I mean, they could have been attacking and counterattacking in that final 12k. They could probably have gotten away and won. So, yeah, I didn't, I didn't love those, love those tactics, and I thought they played into Van Vlieten's hands. Um, there's also two FDJ riders away, uh, Cicely Utrip, Utrip, and uh, Marta Cavallari, probably cousin to Kristen Cavallari. Uh, neither are sprinters. So they probably, you know, if they're obviously no one's thinking clearly because you're screwed, you know, there's no blood in your, in your brain after the Patterberg. But when the gap was seven seconds coming off the Paderberg with like 12k to go, one of them should have sold out to try to bridge up to that. And then once you're up there with Van Vluten, you're not such a good sprinter that she won't work with you. And then you just try, you know, you, you, maybe you probably lose, but at least you're trying, you're giving yourself a you know, they kind of just both sat. It's like they were both kind of doing their own thing. This is the AG2R tactic with uh, Greg Van Avermaet and uh, Oliver Nason, where it's just like two guys who neither of them want to sacrifice for the other, so you, they're just kind of out there doing their own thing. And I think Cecily and Marta, yeah, they got sixth and seventh, which is like the classic result for two teammates not working together. They don't maximize. They both kind of get a top ten, but. One of them could have gotten 15th and the other one would have gotten first or second if they would have sold out for that other person. Because if you're going to sit in and I guess they wanted to sprint, it's not a great, not a great option for them either. But if you're going to do that, one, one needs to go to the front and really just commit to the chase with Vanderbregen and Demi and try to pull it back. Because if you're waiting, presumably you're okay with the sprint. If you don't want to sprint, they both need to be attacking constantly and just trying to close that gap up to Van Vluten. So. I thought that was a little bit of a missed opportunity, too. I heard an interview with Cecily after the race, and she was, like, really peeved, really kind of angry. So I, I wonder if there's something going on there where she wanted—she thought Marta should have been working for her. It was just me just guessing. I don't know. Um, trying to connect dots make, make sense of that. But we'll get into uh, our interview with Kristen, and she'll kind of tell us a little bit more about the race and how that played out. Hey, Kristen, thanks for coming on. Really excited to have you. Thank you. First, congratulations on the race. I mean, that's a huge result to get 10th at Flanders and I guess technically your second time. In my mind, it was your first time, so I'm just going to go with that. <laughs> but that's that's I'll go with
1: that, sure. It was it was um my first time finishing. I was going to say without a mechanical, but I did have to swap bikes halfway through, so um <laughs> but yes, it was it was a good race. It was a hard race, um but it was fun.
0: So. And were you how did you, after the race, were you like very excited about 10th or were, did you have regrets about how the race played out?
1: I mean, I think, so we had uh, several strong riders in the race for Team Tipico Silicon Valley Bank. We had, um, you know, Lauren Stevens and Sarah Gigante, who both, um, they actually got dropped in the Bergton Hout. There was kind of a pile up in front of them. And so then I was left alone in the front group without teammates. And so that made it really hard because going into the Cuermont Every pretty much every team there had more than one rider or several riders. And so a lot of the people who ended up in the front group had leadouts going into that climb. And I was all alone trying to kind of make my way through the leadout. So I actually started the Cuermont in a pretty poor position. And then I wasn't able to get kind of catch up to that group when the split happened. And eight riders went off the front who ended up taking it to the finish. So I think. My only, you know, real regret from the race is not having as good a position going into the Claremont, because I think had I started that climb in a better position, I may have been able to stuck with the front group. Um, But that's a combination of fitness, positioning, not having teammates. You know, there's a lot of things that contributed to that. So other than that, I was really happy. I mean, I think going in, I was like, I want to try and get on the podium, but the way things panned out, you know, I was, I was happy with 10th, um, given how things went towards the
0: end. Yeah. And that was that was going to be, I was just rewatching the race. That was like my one big, my first big takeaway for the women's newsletter that will be coming out probably later today, maybe super early tomorrow, but it, I, I haven't dug into your Strava times or anything. I would assume like you guys were all going about the same difficulty on the Quermont. It was just position at the base because the top you know like eight riders just kind of happened the riders who were at the front kind of went away you didn't even really get dropped it's just there was a split a few riders ahead of you and then that's what makes the difference at that point so that's interesting to to realize that it's kind of all about the lead out going into that and then your position when yeah. you start
1: yeah and a lot of the teams had you know they'd played strategy really well so Trek had sent Audrey Cardone up the road so that you know she actually got caught at the base of the quermont but then they had three strong riders they had lizzie Dagnan, um ellen Van dyke and elisa Longo Borghini. and so all three of them kind of went into the the quermont together um and then grace brown had a lead out from two of her teammates from bike exchange and then there are multiple multiple people on jumbo bisma and so sd works i think had four people going into that climb so a team's you know, with numbers, definitely came out ahead, um, and so you know, part of it's just a numbers game. You know, making sure you have as many riders as possible going into those final climbs. Um, so.
0: And what's that? So, you've it's probably you're probably one of the only riders who doesn't remember this. But once you like kind of go up and over the Claremont, and there's like a false, it looks like a false flat on TV. I'm sure it's much steeper in real life, and it's like eerily mm-hmm. empty. Like there's like no one there. There's like a big. Inflatable man doing a dab, and and like that's it. But normally that's cra- It's like really crowded. Like I don't know if you've ever seen the footage. Like Peter Sagan like caught a sweater on his handlebar there and crashed. I think that must have been like 2018. Um, was that is that like just a brutal section? Is it looks like it looks absolutely brutal, and then you kind of go into a paved rollers after that, where the move. Go- a lot of the times in the men's race, like that's where the winning moves go. But you'd think it would you'd think it would come on the steeper climb, but it actually doesn't.
1: Yeah. I mean, I um from what I saw, so I think people are just really cracked after the Quermont. And then if you can keep pushing at the top, that's usually, I mean, things can get pretty strung out in the Quermont. And so then at the top, depending on whether people stall or whether they keep pushing, that can determine kind of how the groups form. And so I think what makes it challenging is that it's just a string and then whether you keep pushing or not determines the group you're in. So um, you have to keep going even after the steep parts over when you're fully gassed. And so I think that's what makes the top so challenging. And I mean, in our race, there was a pretty clear split of eight by the time the top of the Claremont came. So they were, able to stay away I don't think it was as much of a string when they got to the top but um in the group I was in it was definitely kind of a a little bit more strung out towards the top and then we kind of reconvened right after the Clermont
0: and I I always when I'm watching the section between the Clermont and the Paterberg I like want to vomit watching the race like it looks mm-hmm. it's like I guess that's the easy part of the race but like it kind of looks uphill <laughs> and then you hit the Paterberg it was it looks steep on if it looks steep on TV. I have to imagine it's absurdly steep in real life.
1: Yeah, I mean the thing about the Paderberg is it's it's actually not that long compared to a lot of the other climbs, but it's where a lot of the attacks happen because after the Paderberg it's pretty flat, and so you know Anna uh, who won the race, she attacked on the Paderberg, and a lot of the it's kind of your last chance to really give a really strong attack. Um, I mean you can. On the flat section, but I think the Paderberg just cracks a lot of people. And it's a short, shorter cobble climb, but there is one section that's really steep. And I think a lot of people just mentally crack on it or mentally and physically crack on it. <laughs> and so typically there's, you know, an attack on the Patterberg, and whoever goes with them goes, and it sometimes sticks. So you just want to make sure that you're with that group that attacks in the Paderberg um, or person. <laughs> and in this case on attacked and no one was able to stay with her so she was able to kind of time trial to the finish but in in past years it's been critical because it's just kind of where the final attempts of attack come from
0: it's always shocking i haven't i haven't dug into it yet but i think her gap it's like you take this left you take the left hand off the cobbles onto the pavement and she i bet she only had like or maybe three or four seconds there on the chasers, and then it's shocking how much that balloons over the next yeah. kilometer or two. And the men's race used to play out like that a lot. Um, the women's race actually reminded me of like the Cancellara Sagan era of men's racing, where someone would get a small small gap at the top of the Paderberg, and then you'd have like an exciting pursuit into the finish. And you, you I mean, you had a great ride up the Paderberg too. You. I haven't done the times yet, but I would assume you were, you might've been like close to Van Vleuten's time. I mean, I'll have to check that, but you looked really- Probably
1: not Van Vleuten, but maybe, maybe the front, you know, towards the front of the pack I was in. Um, I mean, Van Vleuten I think is on another level when it comes to her hill climbing attacks. Um, But yeah, she, she um, crested the Paderberg with the seven second gap. So she started her attack on the Paderberg crested with a seven second gap, and then finished with a 25 second gap. And that was over a group of seven riders, all who are very strong. And I think the reason they didn't catch her is that there there weren't a ton of sprinters in the group. And so I think a lot of them were trying to conserve energy. And they just weren't working together maybe as well as they they could have. Um, And at that point, maybe we're just going for second place. And so there were a lot of strong riders behind her and I think if they had worked together, they possibly could have caught her, but, um, it just, it wasn't as organized. And I think, I think a lot of them just at that point were racing for second.
0: Yeah. It's, I saw a lot of like, I was just reading some like Reddit boards this morning and it's people like, why weren't they working harder in the chase group? But this is like a common thing at Flanders where it's a really difficult position to be in. Cause if you do work to pull back the lone rider, you're going to get beat in the sprint and then possibly miss out on a podium at Flanders, which you would want to do. And it's kind of, I think it's why the courses does They, I don't know if you remember this, they changed the course in like 2012 or something like that. And like everyone hated it. It was like a big controversy, but the new course it's pretty good. Cause it incentivizes like a lone rider, like Van Vluten to go. And even though, but even <laughs> if you're by yourself, you're all in and then everyone kind of quibbles behind. I, I haven't, I should run the numbers on this. I, it might only be one or two riders that have ever been caught on that run-in because it's what you're saying where people start riding for second and third. And it's what makes the the race like that final so interesting. Mm-hmm. You guys, did you think you were working better in your cause you were in group three, I believe, behind the chasers.
1: Yeah. So there was Van Blue in, and then there's a group of seven, and then there was my group. And my group, it was tough because uh so there's Cassia and you uh Neodoma from Canyon. There was me and then there was a girl from Ale, um, maybe a girl from Volcar, I'm not sure. And then everyone else had a teammate up the road. And so no one else was working. And so it's basically the three of us trying to chase a group of seven, you know, pretty strong riders. And so we were working together in the beginning. And then once it became clear that we wouldn't catch the group ahead of us, I knew that, you know, the only chance I had to finish in the front of my group was to attack. So there was an ally girl who attacked maybe few mm, k to go. And then around 2k to go, I attacked from my group. And when you attack that close to the finish the you know, it kind of happened. It goes, as you said, which is you're so close to the finish that no one really wants to chase because they don't want to get caught for the sprint. So, um, uh, yeah, I mean, I was able to get away as was the girl in front of me. So I came in tent. So the, there's the non-gluten and then a pack of seven and the girl who attacked the head of me and then me and then there was one girl behind me um, who had attacked as well leah thomas and then the rest of the group came down to a bunch sprint so yeah i mean when you're when you're against the non-gluten so she she attacked and then you know she's european champion you know she um former TT world champion, like it's hard to catch her let alone when you're in a group trying to conserve energy for the sprint. So it, I think every group faced the same dynamic, which is who's going to go, who's going to go, who's going to go. Yeah.
0: Your, your attack actually was similar. I didn't see it on, I missed it on TV, but I think you attacked like right at the same point Greg Van an did in the men's race to get third. And it's, I mean, it was a really savvy move because as you're saying, no one wants to chase you that close to the line.
1: So there was one girl who had attacked right before me. And I probably should have gone with her, but um at the time I I think, you know, in my mind, I was like, we're far enough out that they might try to, you know, bring us down um and catch us. Um, it was actually it was Marlon Rooster who attacked ahead of me. And once she was a little bit away, I think we were 2K from the finish. And I was like, I better go now or I'm not going to get the chance. And I don't really want to come down to a bunch sprint with all of these people. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was Marianne Voss, Latica Pecky, Amy Peters, Lisa Balsamo, all who are amazing sprinters. And I was like, I don't want to come down to a sprint with them. So I either go now or I'm going to be, you know, against some of the best sprinters in the Peloton.
0: So um, that's when I went. Yeah, it was a really, really savvy move. Yeah, because then you avoid that sprint. Um, how, I was kind of wondering, like, how good is the communication from the team over the final two climbs in that final straight? Like, can you hear, can you actually get anything useful from your race radio or from the team car, or are you guys just kind of racing blind on that?
1: No, you can definitely get a lot from the team car. And I think, especially on the bigger teams, they play strategy really well. I mean, um, yeah, I mean, so let's see on the Ode Carmont, so there were four SD Works riders going in. There was Anna Vanderbreggen, Chantal Block, Amy Peters, and Demi Vollering. And Chantal and Amy got first and second last year, and they didn't make the split of eight riders in the front that Breggen and Demi Vollering did. Um, but you know, they, the the two SD Works riders, um, Anna Vanderbreggen and Demi Vollering, they were able to work together in their group, and I think Anna gave got um, a lead out into the sprint. And so, and, and, in my radio, my race director was saying, you know, work, don't work. Like at this point, it's probably a good chance to break. Um, so I definitely had communication with my race director going into the final climbs. I think, you know, it, at that point, the breaks are pretty set though. So if you're going to communicate with your teammates, it's probably going to happen in person. You know, you're going to roll up next to them and say something. I don't think that much is going to happen over the radio other than letting your teammates know where you are and then maybe some instructions from the race director.
0: Yeah. Um, and as you're you were alluding to early Van Vluten's so hard to catch. I mean, I'm like a huge Anna Van Der Bregen fan. Like uh like <laughs> I think she's one of the best. Like she's just like so classy on the bike. Like really, mm-hmm. really an incredible and like incredible and versatile rider. And mm-hmm. then like Van Vluten, it's it was like shocking to see Van Vluten just like I mean drop her like she was like a, re- just like a regular Joe or like, I think you could argue Vander Regan could be one of the best women's or I guess cyclists of all time, regardless of gender. Mm-hmm. And then it was, it was wild to watch Van Vluten hold him off. I, I couldn't believe it, but it makes yeah, sense. Yeah. I mean, I
1: think, yeah. And I think it's also important to understand um, the individual's goals and the team goals. So Anna Vander Br- I mean, I, I don't, I'm not honest. I don't know her super well, but from what I understand, you know, she's retiring at the end of the season. She's looking to become a race director. And so a lot of her role for some of these races is to support her teammates. And so she, you know, put up a pretty good pace on a lot of the climbs. She gave her teammate a lead out at the end. So I don't know if she was racing for the win for herself. Um, I think she was playing, you know, more of a supporting role to her teammates while trying to ensure that her team came out, you know, in the front. And so – I think had it been, you know, Anna against Van Vluten, I don't know what would have happened, but if you look at last year, Anna did catch Van Vluten when she attacked and then Anna didn't work. And then that's when the Bulls riders behind her were able to catch up. So um, I think it was, you know, I don't know exactly what the SD work strategy was, but I think in several races this year, it. I don't think they've put Anna van out to kind of perform her best and, and ride as best as she could. I think sometimes they're having her support her
0: teammates. It's even more impressive. <laughs> she's yeah, like...
1: she's, she's, uh, she's amazing. She's an amazing rider, and, you know, she's also an amazing teammate, and you can see that in, in the way that she's riding both at races last year and this year, just really giving her teammates a chance to win. And, you know, last year it could have been her and Van Vuten going to the line, but instead she kind of sat up because she had teammates behind her and then Bowles ended up getting first and second on the podium. And it wasn't Anna that got on the podium. So I think when you have someone who's such a strong rider, but also knows how to put the team first, you can get a really good, common, you know, strong combination. And I think that's one of the things that makes her so great is that she can perform well on her own, but she can also ensure that her team performs well and put that first.
0: Yeah. And that that actually that rivalry between her and Van Vluten is interesting to me because they're obviously not on the same trade team, but they're on the same national team. And then Mm Vandenbregen shows up to national events like really ready to go. Like World Championships last year was like maybe the fittest I've ever seen anyone or (laughs) Innsbruck in 20 She makes
1: it look easy. Yeah, it's
0: crazy. (laughs) So it's like it's funny. I would like love to be like a fly on the wall, like in their team meetings, like how like. I mean, two, like superstars, like how how are they interacting? Like, how does that, like, how does that work out? And then how do you decide on the road, like who to work for? But I mean, this is kind of what you Mm -hmm. were saying last week where it's like, that's pretty interesting. And it's no one's really digging into that, at least in the English language media.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's slightly different types of writers as well. Um, I mean, they're both really strong time trialists. They're both, you know, really strong attackers, but Um, the way that they ride and the teams that they ride for are also very different. And, and so, um, yeah, I mean, I think it would be interesting to dive into that rivalry a bit more.
0: (laughs) And that kind of, so I used to think Van Vluten was, um, like I kind of first came to hear of her at the 2016 Olympics where she, she was like climbing incredibly well, crashed and broke her vertebrae. Um, so I I kind of had her pegged as like I was like, oh, she's just like a supersonic climber, and then she just started like doing it like really, I she I guess she had won I didn't realize this had won Flanders before in 2011. I think she becomes the only mm-hmm. the only writer to win it ten years apart. Uh, so she has like a pedigree on the cobblestones, but is it? <laughs> do you think like how is I guess the Flanders cobblestones are smoother than Roubaix, so it's not exactly like someone that can climb that well, coming and winning Roubaix. But I have to imagine it's still pretty rough. Was that your experience yesterday that, uh, do the cobblestones? Oh yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, you have to be a strong rider and you have to be a good climber. I think in these classics, you just have to be really fit to make it to the end. And, um, you know, you also have to be a pretty technical rider because there's, you know, there's a lot of times where positioning really matters. And so either you have to be really good at positioning or you have to have really good teammates that can give you good leadouts, you know, it's I think the team aspect plays a big role in this race and that's why teams with numbers in the end like typically come out ahead. You know, the more riders you have towards the finish the better, um which is true in most races, but I think especially in a race like this um because there's just constant attacks, constant attacks towards the end and the more that you can send someone up the road or send someone up a climb, the more you're going to have a fresh teammate in the back and everyone's gas in the end. So if you can have a rider sit in while you have another one up the road, then you know that's a great team strategy. And I, and both Trek and Liv did that actually this race. Um, Trek had sent, sent Audrey Cordon up the road and then Liv had sent Soraya Paladin up the road. Um, and I think Soraya went around Hoton, and, um, then stayed away until about the base of the Clermont. So a lot of Kopecky who's their sprinter could kind of sit in a little bit. So, I mean, it just, the whole race, I think relies on having a really strong team as well.
0: And so that kind of reminds me of something I wanted to ask you about. Like, I think I, when I turned the coverage on, it was like 60, something like 68 K to go. Yeah, so fairly like a, almost two thirds into the race, you had just crashed. Um, like I think he like touched <laughs> wheels, went into the ditch. It was almost the exact same spot where Casper <laughs> Askren crashed who won the Benz race. Um but what like I I believe when I turned it on, there was no breakaway. It was just kind of everything was together at the front. It was what was it like? I think I I could be misrepresenting that. But was there, was it, I assume it was super active from like 100 and whatever, 150, 60K to go whenever it started to that point.
1: Yeah, I think the Bergton Bergtenhout is when a big split happened. And then after that, I think it was pretty, pretty back-to-back just action. Um, so on the Canary Berg, I think Adam McRambu tried to attack, but it was a headwind and Lizzie Dagnan kind of, saw her go. And I think tried to chase after her. And then at the top of the Canary Berg, um, that's when Audrey Cordon went. So I would say the Canary Berg was when some action started to happen. And then um, Leah Thomas had tried. So Leah Thomas is on movie star along with Anamie. And I think she tried to attack on the Birkenhout, but it was caught pretty quickly. And then there was um, kind of a pile up on that climb and a bunch of riders. Split off the back. And so that's, I think, when kind of the final 40 ish riders was determined, was from then on. And that's when teams started to kind of send people up the road and start to play team tactics a
0: bit more. I looked at your power pile, p- power file from yesterday and then compared it to Gent and the.
1: I haven't even done that, so you're <laughs> a step ahead of me.
0: <laughs> so the average, I think this is right, the average at again was actually quite a bit higher. This is not the first time I've seen this. This is like a trend that can happen that I've seen actually quite a bit. Do you, I mean, I assume it didn't feel, I'm assuming it felt harder. I'm assuming it didn't feel any easier. Probably the lower powers due to how difficult the like final 40K is, so people are a little bit more conservative at Flanders than get Mobile Gun.
1: Yeah. So Ghent had really strong crosswinds. I got dropped a few times from the group and had to come back. So I was TTing my way back to the Peloton a few times during Ghent. And, um, so that alone took up my average power. And then I think the second part of that is just the first half of Flanders, you kind of do this kind of popsicle shape loop, um, for the first half ish of the race and not much happens there. And so the peloton's pretty chill. And then I think also because of the climbs, there's more descending. So your power might be at zero. So um, I would say for sure the reason that my power is higher at Ghent was because of the crosswinds and because I got dropped a few times and had to get back onto the pack. (laughs) So I would say, yeah, those are the two factors. The crosswinds and then the fact that Flanders, not much happens in the beginning.
0: That's really impressive in retrospect that you were chasing back on at Ghent from the crosswinds and then still got... Seventh, I believe. That's
1: impressive from a fitness standpoint, not really from a tactic yeah. standpoint. I, I mean, I never should have gotten dropped in the first place. So that's <laughs> you could argue either way.
0: I'd say that's like the PhD level of racing, though. Like figuring out European crosswinds is not not the easiest thing to figure out. So I wouldn't beat yourself up. Over
1: yeah, that. and I think you know it's it's interesting because a lot of people who are from you know Belgium or the Netherlands they're so used to riding in the wind and. So echelons seem to come very natural to them, at least for an American, it seems like it comes naturally to them. Um, and always being aware of which direction the wind's coming from, how strong it is, at what point they should get an echelon going. Um, and for me, you know, especially as a new rider, I am not as tactical with those things. And so I found myself again in many situations where. Suddenly, you know, I was in the Peloton and then suddenly I was in a string of people and the person in front of me, you know, would fall back. And then suddenly there'd be a gap and I'd be behind it and I had to chase back. So unless you're in the front, when an echelon forms, it's really hard to kind of get into it and stay towards the front. So I just found myself in many difficult situations again, where I had to go full gas to get back in.
0: And so... I mean, this is a ridiculous question. But what do you if you had to say the hardest climb from yesterday, what would you say it is? Or are they just all equally hard?
1: Definitely the Quaremont. Okay. Definitely the Quarmont. Because that was um, it was towards the end. I I entered way farther back than I should have. You know, there were leadouts going into it and I wasn't in the front. And then I was just trying to get towards the front group and I couldn't make it. And um and that's when the, the split happened. So I knew the race was happening right there. Like that was, that was where the final groups were formed. And, you know, when you see a group of people in front of you, knowing that they're going to make it to the end and you may or may not go with them, that's the hardest part of the race. Just, you know, the, to me, that's harder than the final sprint. Like that's where the race is, ma- you, know, ma- it's, um, you make it or break it right yeah. there. And then the Paderberg, you know, the Paderberg's hard and steep, but it's short. And at that point, I entered the Paderberg in the front of my group. I finished in the front of my group. I knew that either I was going to be in a smaller group in the front or the group was going to come back together. And so I didn't have much to lose in the Paderberg, but on the Cuermont before, I, you know, I had a lot to lose. I went from being in the front group to being in the second group.
0: Do you think a longer so the women's race is a lot shorter? It's like a hundred k shorter than the men's. Do you think a longer race and this is this a ridiculously theoretical question? Would have helped you because there'd be less of a fight going into the base of the Quermont. It's more. It'd be more. It. It's kind of by the final time. It's like no one has teammates. It's just rider, rider versus rider. But I guess if we assume that, then there would be some point earlier in the race when that was also important, but I, I I was just wondering watching if the shorter distances in women's racing almost, it's like the rich get richer where it helps the, the bigger teams more than like a strong rider on a smaller team who might not have as many teammates there at the end.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting question. I actually think sometimes the men's races are really boring to watch because nothing happens in the first hundred K. Um, and so, you know, it's, Um, I think sometimes when you have really long races, just nothing happens in the beginning and the action doesn't start till, you know, at least halfway through the race. So it, I mean, part of that depends on the course. Part of that depends on, you know, how technical the course is and the wind conditions and et cetera. But, um, I think, yeah, I mean, I think the, the longer and harder the course, the more you benefit from having more teammates just because there's going to be more attrition. Okay. And so you know, if if it's a long course and you have five teammates um, who are all really strong, versus a long course and you have one or two teammates that are really strong, just the law of numbers, who's going to make it to the finish that can be there to support you, um, or you support them. It's yeah. So, but I don't think the distance has nearly as much to do with it as much as the how challenging the climbs are, how technical the course is, how much positioning matters, like. I think that is all way more important than distance itself.
0: Okay. Well, thanks so much for giving me your time. This was really, really interesting to hear about the race. And congrats on the big result.
1: Thank you. All right. We'll chat soon. Okay. Bye, Kristen. Bye.
0: All right. We'll go into Tour of the Basque Country. So stage one was on Monday. So this is exhausting. Flanders finishes. We're right into the Basque Country. But the positive thing is we have all week. We get to focus solely on this. Um, I don't normally pay attention to it a lot. It's kind of in an odd part of the calendar, but uh, if you don't know about the Basque Country, it is extremely mountainous, extremely wet part of Spain. Um, Really, you know, all the roads are up and down, windy, so it's really tough bike racing. It makes for really exciting racing, and we have Primoz Roglic and Tadej Pogacar both here, um, I believe, the riders that are basically a lock to finish first and second of the Tour de France, so any time they're going head-to-head this year, I'm excited. Stage one was a time trial with, like, an uphill finish. I mean, almost exactly like the Tour de France, where Roglic got destroyed by Pogachar and lost the race. So people were paying attention. This was interesting. Roglic beat Pogachar by 28 seconds. So if you just look at the results, you'd be like, wow, like what happened there? Tade Pogachar peaked too early. We talked about this a few weeks back that he's been peaking too early. This is a little bit, if we want to get into peak theory, a little bit different than Vanderpoel and Wout, who are peaking for one day races and racing quite often. Um, if we look back at great Grand Tour riders, and you can you can only hold that peak for for a limited amount of time, just because of the explosive energy required for each of those races. Grand, uh, stage racing is a little bit different. Like really dominant stage races, stage racers over the year, like like uh, over the years, like Bradley Wiggins, Alberto Contador, Chris Froome, in their best seasons, they were winning from February to through the Tour de France, it's because that you're never, it's never quite as explosive. It's more of like steady state efforts and you're not racing that much. You're racing and then taking, you know, three or four weeks off racing. So you, you, you're not really, it's like the illusion of a peak. You're just building up your form, but you're never really that bad. And then you're just getting better and better and better. And you are building, everyone thinks like, oh, you've peaked too early, but you've just still got more steps to go. That's what I think is going on with Pogachar. I don't think he's peaking too early. But if you just looked at the results at stage one, you'd be like, wow, he's peaking. He peaked. He's done. He's got to retire. He's cooked. Uh, but what happened was Roglic started three hours earlier. So he was like one of the first riders off the start ramp. And Pogachar, they'll just default. If you're a contender, they'll default you to like one of the last riders to go because it looks better for TV. TV. Like, I don't think Roglic was even on TV because he started before TV coverage. Uh, but his team management correctly deduced that their wind was going to pick up throughout the day, so he had favorable wind along with Brandon McNulty, the American who got second, just like right behind him, I think a second or one or two seconds behind him. Uh, but then Pogachar went, and it was it was super windy, and he got crushed by 28 seconds. So that's that's why he was slower, not because he's weak. Um, but I understand how you would think that if you just at the results. Stage two was just this morning. Uh, I guess a stage three will have happened or be happening when this comes out if it has if it has happened i'll drop in a stage three little nugget right after this but um it was super interesting i mean all these all these stages are interesting every day of the Bass country is worth watching if you have the time if you can make the time in a weekday morning not a super reasonable request but uh, Pocachar looked to have Roglic on the ropes. I mean, Roglic was isolated in the last, like, with 24K to go. Like, no teammates. This is the same thing we saw at Flanders with, with Wout. Just, they're just leaving these guys just totally isolated. And it's just shocking because it was one of the strongest teams a year ago. Like, I don't quite know what's happened. And he has Jonas Vindegaard, who at Paris and East, everyone was like, oh, I can't believe they didn't send Jonas Vindegaard to help him. Jonas would have fixed everything. And I mean, Jonas is getting dropped. so. I don't know what's going on, but definitely this is, it seems like it's not going to stop being a problem. It, the, what, the most dominant team from 2020 just is not as good this year. And they're leaving their leaders out there to just get, just get cooked, get picked apart by the vultures. So yeah, keep an eye on that for the, for bigger races like the tour, um, seems to be an issue, but Roglic was, looked like he was going to drop Bogachar. I mean, he was off the front, he was flying, uh, Roglic did not panic, just kind of slowly pulled himself up with the rest of the group, and then countered Pogachar. was really him and Max Shachman were absolutely crushing it. Pogachar looked in trouble in uh, trouble. Brandon McNulty did look good though. I was I was impressed by McNulty. Uh, the, it all comes back together though, after the descent, these are really hard descents, too. It's really, sh- it's really shocking to watch this race, just how hard. It's like the flats, there's no flat. The uphills are tough. The downhills are tough, you know it's just got to be. Brutal racing, and it's raining the whole time. Uh, but and a Basque rider, I'm not going to try to say his name. Alex Aranburu got away on Astana, and Astana had numbers here, so they have this Basque. I think there was actually two. Then the Basque riders always do well at this race. It's like something you can count on. I love that's what I love, like the regionality of this race. Alex Aranburu and Omay oh Frile are. One and two on the stage eventually. But Omar's in that front group with, with his teammate. His teammate attacks, and he's not that far. He's only 20 something seconds down on the GC. So he's a GC threat. Gets a big gap, holds it, wins the race. Uh, Pokachar got third. So he closes four seconds on Roglic, which could, be, could come into play. Keep an eye on that. I mean, you don't want to be giving up four second chunks in a week long stage race like this. Uh, but McNulty got distanced and the sprint finished four seconds back. So he drops a little on, G, on the GC, was bummed to see that our our friend, our Basque friend Alex moves up into second. He's still, he's five seconds off Ruglitch, so he couldn't quite get the time he needed to take the overall, but it was, a, it was tricky for Ruglitch because, you know, he didn't want to just pull everyone and say, oh, I got to keep this race lead. I can't give it up. But, you know, Astana put him in a tough position. They had a rider up the road. They had Omar Frele in the, in the Peloton. And I mean, what was... What was Roglic supposed to do? It's a really tough position to be in. You kind of have to walk both lines. You have to keep the pace high, keep it steady. You probably have to do some work, but you don't want to do too much work because then everyone will sit on you and then start to jump you as you get closer to the finish line and you can end up losing 20, 30 seconds. So really bad position for for Roglic's team to put him in. It was really crazy to see. Uh, McNulty... Yeah, I'm I'm like I'm like Mr. McNulty fan. Love Brandon McNulty. Um this is, you know, great in the time trial. It's kind of like a summation of his career so far. Great in the time trial. And then when things get a little tricky, you know, he can stumble just a little bit. You know, the, those 4 seconds that's not what you want to be losing especially in not a routine sprint, but you know, a tough sprint after a tough day. If you want to be a GC contender, you, you cannot be losing time there. You have to be further up so that when a split happens, you're not susceptible to losing time. And um, in in this puts pressure on, on UAE because now you know, Pogachar's moved up to fourth, McNulty's in third. They're still about 20 seconds apart. I, I bet they would have preferred McNulty you know, stay in second or try to take a time bonus to get into first and defend the lead for him. But now it's looking like Pogachar is going to have to really keep throwing bombs all week to try to win the race. So I'm just dropping this in. I just finished watching stage three, wanted to drop this in. Um, super exciting and ridiculously steep uphill finish, like a two or, or three or 4K long uphill finish. Uh, Tade Pogachar won the stage with Primoz Roglic in second. Surprise, surprise. Those guys um, seem to always go one-two on uh, uphill finishes. The two, I mean, they're they clearly the two strongest riders in the race, have established themselves as such. Adam Yates, who, if you remember, uh, just destroyed everyone at Catalunya, was fourth on the day behind Valverde. They were five seconds behind Pogachar and Ruglitch, though, who kind of look like they, with a couple kilometers to go, Carapaz attacked, and they reeled him in, kind of mowed him down like ridiculously easy. It kind of gave the impression that once they saw they couldn't get rid of each other, they slowed up and just waited until that sprint finish. So even though the chase group is only five seconds back, they're clearly the two strongest riders in the race. And now uh, Pokachar takes uh, a time bonus, 10-second time bonus for winning. Roglic gets six for second, so he's pulled back another four seconds. So since he finished 28 seconds back in the opening TT, He's now pulled back eight seconds. He's only twenty seconds behind. You know, not it's not it's not you know he's not overtaking Roglic yet, but that you definitely don't want him to be giving away four second chunks every stage in a six day long stage race. Not good practice on Roglic's part, and it tells you if he hadn't have had that win assisted time trial win, you know he probably wouldn't stand a chance in this in this race. Which kind of uh, makes me wonder how in the heck is he going to beat him in the Tour de France? So. Um, yeah, exciting day. It's, it's mountains again tomorrow, Friday, Saturday. So it will probably be more of the same. Roglic just has to kind of just minimize these time bonuses as much as possible because Pogachar looks like he is not going not gonna to let any breakaway take those time bonuses because that's really his path of success here. Um, McNulty dropped into, I guess, moved up in a third, but he's now 10 seconds back on Pogachar. He lost a bit of time we will probably keep losing little bits of time. So UAE is, is definitely consolidated behind Pogochar at this point. All right, well, that's this week's episode. Thanks for, for tuning in, and catch us next week. I'll talk about but the no-pair So weird, so bizarre, that's been postponed, canceled for two years in a row. But hopefully we'll finally get in October. But I'll be talking about the finish of the Tour of the Basque Country. and what it tells us going forward. All right, well, thank you for listening. Bye.